0: Uh, I want us to be looking at uh, the power of God working behind the scenes in advancing his will and his purposes. Esther 1, let's stand to honor God's word as we read it. This is the word of God. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble and they served drinks in golden vessels each vessel being different from the other with royal wine and abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcas, seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the uh, eunuchs? And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands and their eyes when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. You're supposed to say, ha, but... uh, (laughs) And the reply <laughs> pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Amen. Father God, we receive your word with gratefulness that you have written it, and we want to learn from it. We want our lives to be transformed by it. We desire, Father, that we would uh, better serve you as a result. I pray that you would anoint my lips, enable me to faithfully and clearly uh, bring this word and application to this your people. And Father, that you would give to each one of us listening hearts and uh, obedient wills. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Most people who read through chapter one of Esther I think can recognize tyranny written all over the place but they have a hard time recognizing the forms of tyranny that are current in our own cultures today and uh, I think the reason for that is that we tend to be influenced by our culture to such a degree we don't even realize we're many times thinking in a cultural way uh, for example I was uh, visiting up in Canada uh, uh, my, my father And I got together with uh, some of my friends and and relatives, (coughs) and um, one of my friends uh, was talking politics with me. And in terms of Canadian politics, I was amazed at the increasing level of tyranny, because it had been quite a long (coughs) time since we had talked about politics uh, before. And uh, he thought it was increasing compassion. And I said, well, explain. What what do you mean by this? And the very things that he was bringing up were the things I thought were tyrannical. For example, he brought up the, the fact that they've just got wonderful health care system. And uh, my brother just happened to come in right at that moment, and he says, wonderful health care system, what are you talking about? And he related the incredible, uh, terrible way his wife almost died as a result of the, uh, of the care that uh, she got, or lack of care that she got there which would never have been tolerated here in the States. And he said, you know, what about the abuse that my father was receiving in the hospital and the rationed care, you know, for the elderly? And, and uh, you know, what about the fact that doctors are not allowed to visit more than so many times? Uh, and uh, he went on, he says, you call that compassion? And then it went on to some other things like um, he thought that the government, and the government up there does have a monopoly on car insurance. And he thought that was great because that, does away with uh, ungodly, you know, insurance companies ripping people off. And my brother said, "Well, just two years ago, I totaled my car, and I only got half of what the blue book said, and they wouldn't give anything above that." And uh, conversation just kept going on. We gave all kinds of examples, but he still felt this is compassion, you know, socialism in Russia and Sweden and other places. Th- this is compassion, and that's why we have to define our terms biblically. We need to look to the Bible. What is justice? What is compassion? And I think most of us recognize intuitively the tyranny in here, but I want you to realize this was no Xerxes. This was the enlightened Darius who was noted for his kind policies. In fact, he was nicknamed the doer of good, or as some translate the Persian, he who holds firm to the good. So he had a reputation of benevolence to his subjects. Now let me back up a little bit because some of you were not here last week. And you're thinking, well, what do do you mean, Darius? You know, in my margin, it says uh, that most people say this is uh, Xerxes the king. And so let me back up and explain a little bit. Last week, we saw numerous reasons as to why the Ahasuerus of this book absolutely cannot be Xerxes, and 19 reasons as to why this really has to be Darius the Great, Darius Hystaspes, who was the father of Xerxes. And uh, we obviously don't have time to look at that. But if you look in the secular uh, uh, histories that are out there, the non-biblical histories, you'll find there is only one king who is mentioned, who reigns over Ethiopia and India, who has 127 provinces. And he's Darius. He's said very clearly to be, Uh, King Darius. Now, the way that the writer of Esther words this is there's only one person that fits the evidence here. He's clarifying which Ahasuerus this is. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. We saw as another example that Darius is the only king who imposed tribute on the land and on the islands, uh, chapter 10. And he's certainly the only king who continues to receive that tribute after his 12th year. And chapter 10 is after the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. And uh, we looked at a number of different things, like in 1st Esdras, which is a 2nd century BC uh, document, uh, it clearly identifies, it's a different story than what is giving, given here. He doesn't talk about Esther the queen, uh, but he talks about Darius having almost the same language, reigning over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and putting on a great banquet, uh, etc. I'm not gonna rehash all of that information, but I think that I built a watertight case for this being Darius, and if you have questions, I do have 20 copies of a paper some people ask me, could you at least put it down on paper? So I've, I've got a paper in the back, nine pages of information with lots of footnotes, uh, if you're interested. Some of you would be bored by that, so don't worry about it, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, what I what I want to do is, I want to try to, for you, before we start diving into this passage, trying to fit it into the flow of the biblical history. Uh, If he's Darius, then most of the commentaries you look at are going to be placing it at a totally different point of history than what I'm going to be placing it at. And I think it's very helpful if you can see what the flow of history is. Let me give you a few historical markers. Look at verse 3 and you will see that this is the third year of Ahasuerus' reign, of Darius' reign. What happens uh, in the previous two years, I think, makes a big bearing on this, on this passage. There's a lot that's been going on in the past two years in Israel. And in fact, there's a lot that's been going on throughout the empire, and God has been beautifully orchestrating all of these events to advance his purposes. We know from Ezra 4, verse 24, that uh, the previous year was the first time in years that anybody had begun working on the temple. Prior to that, the Israelites had been discouraged uh, with the work on the temple. They'd given up on that, and they began working on renovating the city, starting to build the walls. In fact, in Ezra 9, verse 9, it indicates they'd made a fair bit of progress on the walls by the time Ezra got there. And uh, they had been. Uh, they had been uh, uh, basically uh, being involved in security and building what Haggai calls their expensive paneled houses he says is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins he says you guys don't have kingdom priorities and when you understand the incredible stress that they were going through I think you can sympathize I kind of sympathized with their saying well let's maybe Postpone that for later God does not sympathize at all with what uh, they were doing they had all of the same excuses that we have for why God's priorities are not our priorities one of their excuses was hey we're not wealthy enough Uh, you know if we had a little bit more money we might be able to build the temple and Haggai says no get out of here the reason you guys aren't wealthy the reason your crops have been failing and you've got holes in your pockets that your money's been falling out of is because you've been following your priorities instead of seeking God's kingdom first. And, you know, he says, I want you to go, I want you to build the temple. And the Jews, uh, you know, basically respond, you know, if we don't have walls, if we don't have houses in the city, you know, what's going to be the point of having a temple? And Zechariah, he responds to them that uh, if they built their walls right now, those walls would be way, way, way too small. Their vision was not big enough. He says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. So they're thinking, we've got to pursue after our livelihoods, our security, and that comes prior to worship. And both Haggai and Zechariah, they're trying to reason with them and saying, no, that's not the way it works. Well, finally, God has to get their attention with a big stick, and Darius is the big stick, okay, that God is using Against them. We saw last week that the first two years of his reign. He was basically reconquering the empire He wasn't able to be at home Enjoying himself. revolts were springing up everywhere. He was putting them down left and right. He was trying to consolidate his power and so Darius is not going to be too happy when the local officials that were overseeing Israel give this complaint in a letter to Darius they say let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundation. So they're, they're doing both, finishing the walls, they're renovating the city. And then in verse 13 he says, let it be now, now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute or custom and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now because we receive support from the palace, it was proper for us to see the king's honor Therefore we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers And you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city harmful to kings and provinces And that they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause this city was destroyed We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed The result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river man. Talk about lousy timing (laughs) I Lord, why did you have to allow them to write this letter right at this time? And God says, this is perfect timing. You've got to get off of your priorities and onto my priorities. And so God uh, has Darius received this letter, and his response is rather predictable because he is hypersensitive to any indications whatsoever that there's revolt out there. Darius says... I gave command and a search has been made and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and Rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river and tax tribute and custom were paid to them now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me take heed now that you do not fail to do this Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? And then it says they send a mighty army, and by force they make them stop building the walls, their paneled houses, and renovating the city. Now, here is the interesting thing. It didn't take much but inconvenience to get them to stop doing God's priorities, but it took an army to get them to stop doing their own priorities. And I think that's so like the way our sinful hearts work. It is easier, it is so much easier if we will immediately say, Lord, I want to run after your will. I want to pursue what your priorities are for me. I don't want you to have to force me, you know, be like the mule that has to have a a bridle before he comes. And so the first thing that he does is God uses Darius to stop the building of the wall so that they can be freed up then to do what Haggai and Zechariah say they should be doing, building the temple. The second thing that King Darius does is he gives them tremendous motivation to start working on that on that temple um, now as soon as they start working on the temple they receive opposition from the local authorities local authorities come and say look you've already been informed that you can't be working on the on the uh, uh, the walls and on Jerusalem and what are you doing working on this temple and say oh ah, well the temple Cyrus gave a decree that we could work on this temple so they say well I guess we better not buck Cyrus Let's send another letter to Darius. They sent in fact. Why don't you turn there with me? It's kind of an interesting one Ezra chapter 5 They send a letter to Darius now Darius is uh, (coughs) um, He is not opposed to building temples in fact, he has been building temples for other religions around the world This is one of his policies so he doesn't really have a problem, but he does do a search and um, they, the letter they sent is in chapter 5, the letter he responds is in chapter 6. And verses 3 through 5 is the decree of Cyrus that they dug out of the archives. Okay, But let's start reading at verse 6. Uh, Ezra 6 and verse 6. Now therefore, Tetnai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar-Boznai, and your companions the persians who are beyond the river keep yourselves far from there let the work of this house of god alone let the governor of the jews and the elders of the jews build this house of god on its site moreover i issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these jews for um, the building of this house of god let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river that's their region right and they were thinking oh great why did we ask uh, <laughs> This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it, and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this and may the god who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of god which is in jerusalem i darius issue a decree let it be done diligently then tetanai governor of the region beyond the river Chethar, Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what king darius had sent so the elders of the jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And that should read even Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth month of the reign of King Darius. So the sixth month, I mean the sixth year, excuse me, of the reign of Darius. So that takes us all the way up to the year that Esther is taken into the temple the year before she becomes a a queen <coughs> amazingly Darius who is is unalterably opposed to renovating the city building the walls of that of that uh of that city is very eager for them to be building a temple. God was forcing the Jews to put first things first, and it wasn't until Mordecai got raised and elevated in his status that uh, God changed things just at the perfect time so that they say, temple's built, I'm gonna let you work on your your houses, I'm gonna let you work on your walls now. And uh, God's timing is, is really remarkable, but just by way of quick application, Don't make God force you to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Okay, it's a whole lot easier to do it the other way. One other detail that Haggai and Zechariah portray in the second year of Darius uh, is um, the spiritual warfare that's been going on throughout the empire. Zechariah has a vision, and in that vision, he sees all of these angelic horsemen and horses that have been going through uh, back and forth throughout the empire. And uh, the angel speaks to Zachariah and the angel tells him, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now that was big news. For two years, the earth had not been resting quietly, but finally wars and rumors of wars in Darius's reign were giving way to rest. Now, the angel of the Lord tells them I don't want you to get too excited about this either of those things first don't get excited about the peace because I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease second don't get too excited about all of this government help for the temple because he says they have helped but with evil intent and their evil intent is written all over this passage scripture sees well I should put it in the negative scripture does not see government financial assistance to the church as being a blessing. He sees it as being a snare. He sees it as being something that is actually not good. I'm not at all excited about President Bush's financial aid being channeled through churches and other religious organizations. Uh, I think it's just a precursor to just more strings coming. Darius was incredibly generous with other people's money. And we've got secular texts that tell us of all of the temples that he had built around the empire. In fact, uh, in the archaeology books, you can look at the temple in Egypt, and you'll see the bricks have the imprint of King Darius right on them, okay? They're in, here's a temple to another god, and King Darius says, okay, my stamp is on there. For me, it's not, it's not an evidence of his generosity with other people's money. What it is to me is he wants sovereignty over the temples. He wants sovereignty over what goes on. Uh, Throughout the uh, throughout the Empire and so according to the Bible biblical government is limited government It's the very opposite of what we see in chapter 1 and so in our remaining time What I want to do is I want to quickly outline some of the ways in which Darius was playing God he was playing uh, uh, God going beyond the limited role that God gave or to use the language of Zechariah how he was helping but with evil intent and then we'll quickly show how God shows Darius, Darius is not God, God is God, and he is in total control of everything. Now, I've not preached on, uh, on government for a long time, so I think it's uh, probably time that we make some applications here. In fact, uh, Joel, if you could put this up here and just kind of help them with the outline. <clears throat> First temptation of civil government is to have a monopoly of power. monopoly of power and you can see that throughout the rest of of uh, this book you can see it in uh, the uh, uh, dictating of what men and women will do in their own homes in verses 20 through 22 I mean is that really a government's responsibility to be telling wives that they need to uh, honor their husbands on penalty I don't I I don't think that's uh, that that's the government's uh, role we need to recognize not all sin Is a crime right gluttony is a sin but the scripture does not give the government the right to say okay we're gonna criminalize all (coughs) gluttony Um, that is self government there are some things God has entrusted to family government some things he's entrusted to church government some things he's entrusted to uh, to civil government but uh, anyway you can see it throughout the book but you can see it just in verse 1 very very clearly you can see it in the name Ahasuerus the title Ahasuerus was a declaration of sovereignty. There is no one over him. Okay? In fact, there's a reason why. We talked uh, about the fluidity between the names. Artaxerxes is equivalent to Ahasuerus. But when you see how God uses the names, very interesting. And we'll be bringing that out as we go through, uh, through the uh, book. But uh, the name Ahasuerus, you can see it in his constant desire to conquer more of the earth. Uh, always stretching uh, stretching out his was the largest territory of any of the argumented kings and it says in verse 1 came, "Now not came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia Man incredible stretching out he had a, a large enough kingdom in the first few years But he was constantly pressing more 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 that he wanted to have now contrast that with the uh, words that God said to Israel that he gave them a special area that they would be in, but he says, don't meddle with the kings over here. Don't meddle with those kings. I have not given them to you. He did not want them having an expansionist uh, perspective. Now that's just a part of it. You know, United Nations wants to have, you know, one world government like Darius wanted to have. That's just a part of it. It's not just universal jurisdiction out that way. It's universal jurisdiction within the nation as well, over everything that goes on, over every form of government, for example, Has God given the family, and the church, and the state as separate jurisdictions? And we believe absolutely, yes, He has. They're separate governments, not one over the other. They're separate side by side. They've got different jurisdictions. And um, uh, God cursed some of the kings who overstepped their jurisdiction, like King Uzziah, for example, and began meddling in what was the jurisdiction of the family, or what was the jurisdiction of uh, the church. And it's not enough to say those were sincere kings. I mean, there is enough sincerity to go around, you know, to everyone. Uh, I think probably the people who established some of the, you know, unconstitutional agencies in America, like OSHA and the Department of Education, Department of Agriculture, and all these other departments, I'm sure they were very sincere. They didn't want to see people losing their farms. They didn't want to see people being hurt on the job you know they they want to make sure people are educated so there's sincerity there but the question we need to ask is not are they sincere we need to ask the question is this a legitimate jurisdiction that the government has and if we're not willing to ask that question then we are saying in effect governments can be in a house there are no limits to what governments can do right we need to ask what is the jurisdiction of government Sovereignty is an attribute of God not of man Limited jurisdiction limited powers is an attribute of the creature and I think even churches can fall into this trap uh, Very easy. We've got a families can fall into this trap Um, One of the reasons we put into our, uh, our our purpose statements over and over again that families retained themselves all powers all rights, all uh, uh, ministries that are not explicitly given to either state or church is because churches, if they don't realize that they have limited jurisdictions, it begins creeping into other areas, doesn't it? And so it can happen to, uh, to any of us. By the way, I love the name Covenant Family Church because I think that gives a nice balance. That, that concept of federated families uh, is, uh, is a great concept. Rush Dooney says God grants dominion to man under his law, but he does not grant his sovereignty God alone is absolute Lord and sovereign to deny God's sovereignty is to transfer sovereignty from God to man or to man's state Thus Thomas Paine and the rights of man affirmed as a fundamental principle the sovereignty of the nation-state declaring and I want you to get this this is terrible theology, but it's a theology that not just liberals but many conservatives are embracing to their bosom in government today. They they, they really are followers of the quote-unquote conservative Thomas Paine. But here's what Paine said. The nation is essentially the source of all sovereignty, nor can any individual or any body of men be entitled to any authority which is not expressly derived from it. The government, the, st- the nation, is the source of all authority. I mean, that's saying that they have all a monopoly on power r.j rush he said the goal of the state is the old pagan and platonic dream of a monopoly of power by its claim to sovereignty and to universal jurisdiction over everything within its domain the modern state seeks indeed to be a god walking on earth now obviously i don't think most kings are going to call themselves god now, that'd be too crass and i don't think darius would have called himself god he was a monotheist he worshipped one god he was a zoroastrian And so he would have said no, there's one God but by his actions he denied it by his actions He declared himself to be so that's the first hint of playing God his seeking to have a monopoly of power Well that immediately is going to manifest itself in different ways and manipulation and politicking is one point B verse 3 Of Esther says that in the third year of his reign He made a feast for all of his officials and servants the powers of Persia and media the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him now, why did he do this? Herodotus talked about these kings putting on these massive banquets and Why did he do it? Well, I think there were three reasons that were uh, spelled out first to visually make it obvious to everyone through his wealth that that uh, they were beholden to him like a father feeding his family okay secondly to demonstrate that he had the wealth to be able to make good on his promises of reward to those who were loyal to him and thirdly he was just appealing to their selfishness their self-interest and it's not just the federal agents and officials that need to be kept happy and loyal he wants the citizens of Sousa happy as well and so tax money flows generously for 180 days and uh, it's very easy to spend other people's money, isn't it? But it's dangerous. It's dangerous as well. And I think that there are many parallels to American lavishness, not only in the pork barrel projects, you know, that benefit, you know, the congressmen who voted for it, their pork barrel back home, their little Sousa. Sousa is the same word as Shushan, just different pronunciations. But I think it benefits, uh, uh, too, uh, the loyal congressmen who cooperate, the advancements that they get, and the perks that their friends get. Uh, Greek historian Herodotus, he was not fooled by these banquets. He saw it as a form of manipulation. And I do not think that the Jews would have been fooled by this. They would have seen this as being uh, tyranny and manipulation. First Samuel 8 is just one of several passages which speak of the tyranny and the theft of government. And uh, if God considered what was going on back there as theft, it makes you wonder what he thinks of what's going on uh, here in America. It's a forced taking of money from one person's pocket and redistributing it, giving it to another person's pocket. And it's called theft because God has not authorized the taking, nor has he authorized the distribution. He has authorized taxes for specific purposes, but we have gone way beyond that. It's not for largesse. Now, what the book of Esther is doing is it's trying to show how God can manipulate the manipulators, how he can uh, humble the proud, how he can advance his kingdom through people who are fighting against his kingdom. You know, the very people who are fighting against the Jews are the people who are used in, in God's irony to promote the cause of the Jews. And so this is basically going to be demonstrating that God is in control, not Darius. Amen, and that's something we can take comfort and encouragement in as well. He's setting the framework in this chapter, and I'm going to skip over some of the evidences. Joel, why don't you just uh, go down to point G? Verse 11 says, "To bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold." Now, some have suggested that's all he wanted her to wear—just her crown. And that could be true. Uh, It does say he was merry with wine. We're not told how merry he had gotten with wine. Uh, I'm I'm skeptical of that interpretation, but I guess it is an outside possibility. Um, I really think what he is doing is he wants her to come in all of her glory. And he wants to show her off as being the best wife, just like he had the best of everything else, right? And the sad thing, either way you take it, whether you think he was he was drunk enough to be asking her to come in nude or whether he was still, either way, using her to promote his own interests. He saw her as an object uh, uh, that that could be used rather than as somebody that he needed to nourish and to protect and to care for and to minister to. And uh, I... I, I the, I think really that wanting to control situations control people control circumstances is native to the human heart I think we're all little ahasueres running around apart from God's grace and we're wanting to control things some people are much better at it than other people are but I think it's native to the human heart and Jesus warned us he says that no one who does not forsake all things take up their cross and follow him, those who are, don't do that, he says, they're, they're, they're not worthy to be his disciples. The desire to possess, the desire to control, I think, is just a part of our human heart. And Christ says, we can't do that. We need to let it go. And he promises perks when we do so. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Christ said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one this is one of those universals no exceptions there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time and then he lists the same things that they've given to god as a stewardship trust god's giving it back enabling them to enjoy it 100 times more He says, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, the promises of pain-free life, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so putting ourselves first, refusing to deal with things as a stewardship trust, means we're acting as God's. And in one sense, Darius's attitude toward his wife was really no different than the Jews who were back in Israel and were refusing to build the temple. They wanted to hold on to their things, and they were putting God on the back burner, okay? They were treating it as if they were a as if they were the ones who had the sovereignty over it and the right to determine when and where it should take place. Now, we're probably going to look at Vashti more on another day, so I'm not going to spend too much time here, but I do want to say... That when we're pointing the finger at King Darius, we need to remember that there may be three fingers pointing back at us. Because it's so easy for us to have this kind of a controlling uh, attitude toward others. We dare not be little Ahasuerus. We rightly point out that pornographers are dehumanizing people. They just use women. We rightly point out that drug dealers, you know, they don't care that they're destroying lives. All they care about is that they're going to be filling their pocket. Uh, we rightly object to spouse abusers and spouse controllers and, and people like, uh, like Cain who saw Abel as an object to be destroyed. But you know what? Those are just logically more consistent forms of a lack of stewardship, saying, I'm the one who dictates what I can and cannot do. And let me tell you something. If you are a hasower, there is no limit to what you might try to do apart from God's sovereign grace. And so we, we do need to be admonished by this. Now, we do need to hurry on. Verse 4 speaks of, showed him the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days. Okay, he saw the whole kingdom as his and the wealth of the people as his and the people themselves were his, as the book goes on to show. He was the one who was the center of uh, the universe. And I think this is the ultimate in centralization of, the, of, of government consistently with that what is a crime against him is a crime against the whole nation what's a crime against any part of the nation is a crime against him Uh, he just sees himself as being wrapped up in there verse 16 Mimucan answered before the king and the princes Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus I mean he's universalizing a little thing that's happened in his household but when the king's whims become state laws, you have tyranny. You have the ultimate in centralization of government. The Holman Bible Dictionary says, Unlike Cyrus, Darius organized a tightly knit centralized state and vested himself with absolute power. And I think almost anybody would agree with that statement. Any, any scholars would, would agree with that. Uh, There's much I don't agree with in American politics But one thing I am so thankful for is we don't have absolute power Still not possible because we got all kinds of checks and balances in place in this nation. We need to be thankful for that We need to be very grateful for that Okay point J Joel another danger that we see in this chapter is multiplying laws every time a new perceived danger comes up verses 19 through 20 if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree... You know, by the way, I, I didn't, I should have probably mentioned that, but that idea that the law cannot be changed, that's a claim to divinity. You know, man's laws are eternal, they're unchangeable you know just like gods are but anyway verse 20 when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout the empire and that's also uh, skating on thin ice the king's decree which he will make you know he's an advisor he's not supposed to be telling him what he will be doing but anyway will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire for it is great all wives will honor their husbands both great and small as if a law is going to cause wives you know to honor and respect their husbands Uh, That's just not the uh, not the way that it works. And then he makes his decree in verse 22 Now this is humanism's way rather than admitting that it was his sin That it was a problem with uh, the way government was handling things the shift goes off somewhere else And what's the solution more of the same problem? And I I just see that all over the map is the way we tend to deal with things for example You know during the Great Depression all kinds of people lost money in the stock market So what does the government do? They come along and they say, the only people who can invest in venture capital startup companies, the only people who can do that are people who have so many million dollars worth that have, what is it, 300000 or something like that of cash that's available. And so millionaires love this kind of law. They say they're protecting the little guy, but what they're doing is they're keeping the little guy from getting the cream of the crop of investments. You can see it in the modern uh, situation with Enron and Anderson. We've got accounting problems. We've got major mess that's out there. Maybe people have broken the law. What do they want to do? They want to make more laws. People are always going to get around those new laws until finally we have so many laws, we don't have any more free market. But that's just the way uh, the, the um, Hasuerus approach to government works is uh, we view the state as savior. And uh, we have to recognize there is only one savior, there is only one Messiah. He is King Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Now we're living in a time when even conservatives I think view every problem as a problem We don't instantly go to the Lord. You know God judged. What was it? King Asa because he went to doctors before he went to the Lord (laughs) We live in a time when people are constantly going to the state doesn't matter what the problem is We go to the state for the solution State is not Messiah Okay Uh, Joel why don't we just skip down all the way to L? government steps into the home tries to run the home in verse 22 then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. And the logic there is that if the man's going to be the master and he's married somebody that speaks a different language, you've got to outlaw that language, you can only be the language, you know, crazy law. But um, uh, suffice it to say that big government's always going to get bigger because uh, they don't see their creaturely limits. Now, let's, let's go on and uh, go to point number, Roman numeral 2a, Joel. God in this chapter humiliates Darius and demonstrates he is God, not Darius. God is God, and he's not only going to use the mess up that Darius uh, sees here to promote Esther and Mordecai at just the right time, but to advance his purposes and his kingdom throughout the empire. And we're going to be seeing it's some pretty exciting stuff. Now, even if the Jews don't learn the lesson, I mean, the, Darius did not learn the lesson, the Jews who read this book, they're going to get the lesson very, very clearly. The irony, I don't think, is lost on the readers, that the one who is commanding everybody else to be masters of their own home couldn't be master of his own home, right? Uh, it, it's it's uh, sort of like Congress passing laws, but they're exempt from these laws that they pass on everybody else. Uh, if Vashti proved one thing, it was that Darius could not control her will. He could kill her but he could not control her will. I think we need to learn that lesson as well. You know, many times we get frustrated with people and angry with people and bent out of shape because we're trying to control them. We can't even control and change the hearts of our children. We can influence, we can love them, we can bring God's word to bear into their lives, but only God can change the heart. That's why we have to be on our knees when we're ministering to our children, why we have to be on our knees When we are praying that god would change the state politics alone is not going to do it it has got to be god changing the hearts of people you know the we recommend the power of a praying wife but hey that's not just a good book for wives that's a good book for all of us because all of us are trying to do that thing it's not just wives seeking to change husbands husbands seeking to change wives we're all in the business of doing god's job where God says, look, your responsibility is to be faithful with my word, preach it into people's lives, lovingly declare uh, the word to them, minister to them, wash their feet and pray and watch me do my job. But too many times we take on the position of God ourselves and consequently we're just frustrated in our, our relationships with each other. Anyway, that's getting kind of off on a rabbit trail, but the point here is that God chose Darius There were limits in his power with Vashti. Secondly, he shows him he really doesn't know what to do. In verse 15, he says, what shall we do? Uh, Then the third way, point C, the third way that God shows the lack of control of Darius is in verse 12. It says, therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. His goals had been obstructed (laughs) and his pride was slapped in the face. It was hurt. And if he had been in control, he wouldn't have been angry. But we need to realize most of life is out of our control, right? There's no need for anger when we can depend upon the Lord to do His job. So anyway, He can't control her. So what does He do? He tries to destroy her. And I think that's what goes on in many marriages. It's what goes on in many families. The fourth evidence that He is not God is that He succumbs to the counselor's manipulations, probably without even realizing He was being manipulated. Some have suggested that Mmukin had ulterior motives. Maybe, maybe He wanted. He, he was nobody. Maybe He wanted His. Um, he seeks to manipulate Darius, and Darius is not thinking straight. Ironically, by accepting Mamukin's advice <laughs> about his embarrassment here, he universalizes his embarrassment. He's telling absolutely everybody in his whole empire, I want you to do what I've not been able to do. Okay? He's going to be the laughing stock of the whole empire. But, you know, anger and rage many times does not think straight. And secondly, it seems that Mimucan doesn't want to risk Vashti coming back into favor And so he wants to invoke the policy. Let's make this one notch up Let's make this a decree of the Persians and the Greeks. I don't want my neck to roll You know, she gets back into graces with you. So he makes it and he can't do away with it Another irony is he is ensnared in his own laws chapter 2 verses 1 through 2 imply that he later regrets this decision with Vashti but because of Mamukin, he can't do anything about it Laws of the Persians and the Medes. Bureaucracies many times do get stuck in their own laws, don't they? And many times they're used against them in God's, uh, in God's providence. But um, this may have been one of the reasons why uh, Mamukin got fired, got the ax. His name doesn't appear anywhere else in this book. And it may be he's the one, because he says, oh, man, boy, did I get, did I get manipulated on this one. I'm going to at least fire him. I can get back at him this way. And uh, that's how Haman comes in. And Haman has to come in in order for the rest of the story to fit. God is God, and I am not. Amen? Um, Let's close by making just three quick applications. First of all, don't see the government as the solution to your problems. The angel of the Lord said about these nations, they had started sending money to support the temple in the previous year. And he said, I am exceedingly angry with the Gentiles at ease was a little angry and they helped with evil intent he said initially I was just a little angry with the nations but now that they've sent this money I am exceedingly angry against them and you might wonder or scratch your head what in the world why would he be angry with the nations who are helping I mean isn't this a good thing you know to be supporting the temple and and everything like that and uh, God sees through it he sees big government as in competition with him at every step of the way He sees their evil intent because he sees when Darius gives money to build this temple over here and to build this temple over here, it's to declare his sovereignty over that temple. And I think that's what's going to be happening, Uh, you know, more and more in this nation. If we don't watch out, it'll be interesting to see what kinds of strings that the government imposes on all the money from the churches who are taking it. I'm convinced there's going to be strings. Congress and Senate, they're already trying to get strings attached, and uh, there, there, there may be all kinds of... Laws that uh, that will be passed Darius gave charity. Well, it wasn't charity It's other people's money. Okay, it's hard to give charity because it comes out of your own pocket but um, Anyway, secondly, don't imitate the king in the way you relate to people The best leaders according to the scripture do what? They serve they wash other people's feet. They don't use people you know, even in, in, in our church ministries, we need to be careful that we don't use people. I need somebody for this ministry. We need to see, you know, is there a fit? What is God leading in? How can I best stir people up to ministry? Yes, but let's not, uh, let's not use them in, 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 in our church. And uh, we need to be looking to the best interests of our wives, of our children. They were self-centered in their treatment of their wives and children. Thirdly... Trust God's providential control of all things Ephesians 1 11 speaks of him who works all things According to the counsel of his will God was in control of that drunken party It had to be there for everything else to work out uh, God was in control in the revolts and the empire that started at just the right time to serve his purposes And at just the right time to serve his purposes He's in control of the um, fact that Darius distrusts Israel enough that he won't let them continue to work on their walls and on, on uh, their uh, building projects, but he trusts them enough to be able to let them do the temple. Okay. Uh, Darius, uh, Darius's rage and his anger was under God's control. Vashti's bad hair day was under his control. Okay. The manipulations that uh, Darius was trying to engage in, was under God's control. In fact, God made sure Darius could not outmanipulate Memucan because Memucan not only had to make sure that, the, that uh, the decree was made, but God had to make sure Memucan got out of the way as well. So he made it non-reversible. He shut down Israel's self-absorption. Now, the question comes, how can God do this? He's controlling all kinds of sin in this book. It's very clear. Even the greatest sin in this world is what? It's the crucifixion. And yet it was predestined to occur at exactly a certain time of day, on a certain day. The Pharisees didn't want it to happen in the Passover. They wanted it to happen after when there weren't crowds. And God says, no, it's going to happen on and 14, exactly the time that I've specified. How can God do that? Well, one of the ways that I've illustrated that uh, uh, before from A.W. Pink is that any object is of its own nature going to fall to the floor I don't have to slam this down to the ground for it to fall all I have to do is withdraw my restraining grace I mean my restraining hand that illustrates my uh, God's restraining grace okay like the gravity that draws this down we are prone everybody is prone to sin and even unbelievers have God's restraining grace keeping them from becoming more evil than they could become now what does Romans 1 say God eventually, when they despise His grace, He gives them up, right? What happens when He gives them up? They are going to fall. So God can determine that they will fall without being the author of sin in any way. He doesn't tempt people to sin. They don't deserve that grace that was restraining their behavior. But when He gives them up, it's guaranteed they will fall. And I think that's, you know, a limited, finite illustration of how in the world it's possible. People are responsible for their sins. And yet God is sovereign over them. And I hope that this chapter has given you guys and you gals and you children an incredible confidence. God can control what's happening in Sudan and the tyranny that's being happening there where Christians are being killed off left and right. God is in control of what is happening in America, in Iraq, in Saudi Arabia. And we need not fear what is coming upon the earth. Wars or rumors of wars, it does not matter. Our king reigns. Amen. And uh, people may try to play God, but they will fail, and for that we can be thankful. And so let's uh, give God the glory, and let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. We thank you for your control over all of the things of this earth. We thank you, O oh God, that we can trust you to do what you have said is your responsibility, and that frees us up to do what is our responsibility. I pray that we would not play, try to play God with our wives, with our children, with our workmates, uh, with uh, anybody else, but Father, that... We would seek to be stewards of all that you have given to us. And Father, we enter then into the blessing that you have promised as we give up all and follow you as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, realizing your promise that you will add all these things to us. Blessed be your name, O holy God. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen.